I think the path to be successful is different, right? So for example, the founder who's been that person is obviously going to rely on their empathy, rely on their personal approach. If you ever want to stop someone from, I don't know, feeling depressed or grief, you know, what do you give them, right? You make sure that they sleep very early and you make sure they wake up at the crack of dawn, right? You know? I studied economics, I was working in nonprofits and social enterprises in the medical field. And so at, even in university, I thought my goal was to provide the strategy layer for the Gates Foundation and so, so forth. There are so many beautiful stories of when everything goes right, when both sides are in harmony. So, you know, we look at Facebook was VC funded, right? Palantir was VC funded. Airbnb was VC funded. Hi, I'm Amanda Kua, and this is One More Scoop. Here, we're sitting down with Southeast Asia's top founders, executives, and investors to have honest conversations about their personal journeys and find out what really happens behind the scenes. Jeremy Au is Chief of Staff and an investor at Monks Hill Ventures. He's also an active angel investor and hosts the Brave Southeast Asia Tech Podcast. Before Monks Hill, he built Cozykin, an early education marketplace in the U.S. He led the startup as CEO from zero to Series A, and it later got acquired by Higher Ground Education. We talk about what it was like for him growing up, how he dreamed of being a vaccine researcher, and how he transformed his life after basically flunking school to studying at UC Berkeley, one of the top universities in the U.S. How he coped with grief after tragedy, and how being in the army helped him pick up the pieces. Beyond that, we also talk about how he co-founded his own impact consulting platform and how he started his startup Cozykin and the pivot that changed it all. And of course, why he came back to Southeast Asia and ended up where he is today. Hi, Jeremy. So nice to speak with you today. Hi, good to see you. Awesome to finally be on another podcast with each other. Now we're on opposite sides of the table. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the brave podcast misses you, but it's okay. Here's another <laughs> conversation I can have, and I'm sure we'll take it a different way as well. Yes, totally. Well, for me, I feel like I always see on LinkedIn because of the brave podcast. Everybody who speaks to me and talks about you and Max Hill, the brave podcast. But for me, I feel like I want to ask about what I don't know. And I want to hear about you when you were growing up. What was life like for you? What were you interested in? Oh, the tables have turned. I've almost the person asking questions and now to reveal more about myself, my dark and tragic past. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think for myself growing up, yeah, you know, I was a nerd, right? And still am a nerd. You know, I grew up loving encyclopedias, science fiction. I was part of the computer club as well as the drama club in uh, middle school and high school. So what that means is that I was playing around coding in HTML and doing web design, going out for computer knowledge competitions and lots of nerdy stuff. And we also ran a school-sponsored land cafe. So we managed to convince our school to fight the uh, the scourge of our students going out to play at land cafes in other places. And we convinced them to build a land cafe on our school premises. <laughs> and then we ran it. What's so a land like, cafe? Like a computer gaming cafe? Oh my gosh, now you make me feel so <laughs> old slash... You don't know what a land cafe is? Okay. It's like when people can't afford great computers at home. So there's a shop where you have multiple PCs and everybody just games together with each other. Normally they sell food. And I know. But you're, like, yeah. you're allowed to play in the cafe during like lunch break and recess and after school. Is that what the setup is like? 
Yeah, I mean, that's what we regulated it to be, right? So we legalized land gaming, local area network gaming, by allowing uh, folks to have a maximum of two hours per week. You know, it was only available after school hours. And, you know, if you had bad grades, a teacher or parent could (laughs) submit a block (laughs) to us. And so we would borrow you from the (laughs) cafe. And we had offered very cheap prizes, right? And uh, that was a really fun experience running a cyber cafe. And it was nice. Yeah. How old were you when, when it was like just open? Oof, setting this up was like secondary school. So I don't know, must have been like 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, you know, the fun times. Was it because you loved gaming and you wanted to play in school or? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, it's like the whole club came together and sent in the proposal. You know, at the end of the day, I think everybody was doing some level of gaming back then, right? I mean, even today. Well, you know, at least, okay, you know what? You're right. Not everyone was a gamer back then. I mean, we were the weirdos, <laughs> right? We were the nerds. I just literally said that, right? You know, we were the uncool nerds playing StarCraft and Warcraft and Counter-Strike and these games, right? And, you know, I think fast forward 20 over years and I remember I was at the uh, Dota 2, you know, finals, right? At, um, that was being held in Singapore. And obviously everybody was there. It was a giant party. It's a whole, t- you know, like stadium worth of fans. And there was like AR effects and, you know, there was all kinds of like fireworks. And there was like millions of dollars as a prize. And I was telling my friends, like, oh my gosh, the nerds have gone mainstream. Because <laughs> my secondary school best friend was like watching it with me. I was like, guys, we've, we've gone mainstream. We became cool, right? You know, now <laughs> we used to be like the unfit people, you know, pasty Representation. <laughs> and yeah, and now we're like, athletes with us you know sponsored jerseys and stuff like that and the strategy and as commentators you know so yeah it was uh, fun times uh, yeah. so if i asked you in secondary school what did you want to be in the future when you grew up yeah you know i wanted to be a vaccine researcher and a poet on the side so uh, what that meant was i wanted to really interested in biology i was interested in the body i was interested in research and problem solving uh and so um, there was a, you know, tremendous amount of interest. I also had, you know, time man of the year. And what was interesting was that I had gone through the experience of watching some Asian American scientists really kind of like be celebrated for their work. Right. And so there's a level of representation that ended up kicking in hard because I was like, oh, you, you know, you can get success for me, an Asian, I think, perspective on a global stage by, you know, doing research in vaccines and so forth and so forth. So I think there was a big interest in my side to explore vaccine research as a category. And, you know, eventually I got the opportunity to look at different, I don't know, like shadow people. <laughs> and I realized that it was a lot less fun than I thought it was going to be. And so I was like, okay, I got to find a different you know path. And also my grades were terrible as well. So I wasn't really cut out for that at that point of time. So, so you were shadowing vaccine researchers in high school? No, I wouldn't say vaccine researchers. Just like medical scientists, which is like, you know, a much broader group, right? You know? And then it was just like, okay, you know, you, you sit in a lab, you do a bunch of pipetting at that point in time. And then, you you know, it just didn't look sound. I think it was like, I think the idealized version of this person who was like saving the world, which is also true. They do save the world. But what date, but I think he didn't have the reality of what was the day in the life of it, right? And so I thought it was nice uh, learning to have. So how did you get from running that cyber cafe to wanting to be a vaccine researcher? Like what filled the gap there? I mean, back then, you know, it was like similar, right? I mean, you growing up technology and computer games, I don't know. I mean, today now we're like, oh, you know, if you use computers, you must be in tech, right? Yeah. But it just didn't feel like it. It just felt like having computers was a way of life, right? You know, it didn't feel, mm-hmm. I don't know, it didn't feel like a contradiction, right? To be like using computers in your everyday life and playing computer games with your friends. 
and also being a nerd about you know biology and things like that. It just felt very similar, right? I think the world has kind of swung around to that, right? Because I would say like even like say 20 years ago, I think the thought of medical research is being very different from computers, right? But if you go to Boston today or anywhere, like all the medical scientists, you know, they're using computers all the time, right? You know, I literally met someone and they were like, they were laughing, right? It's like, you know, they coded up the robot to come up with hypotheses about what to test. Then they have robots to automate the testing of those hypotheses. And then they just look at the results and say, okay, this is more interesting or this is less interesting, right? And so there's a lot of technology that's happening. So there's a bit of a meld of both. And then I think when I was searching about you and your background, I came across a story that you experienced heartbreak in your secondary school year. But is that related to how you wanted to be a vaccine researcher? Or do you think that didn't affect anything at all? Yeah. So what the story is, is that in high school, I was on track to be a medical researcher. And so I was studying uh, biology and chemistry and math and economics. So I was on that track, right? And I think that was my plan. And then my first love, she wanted to be a pharmacist. You know, we're doing a lot of that. And long story short, is she unfortunately passed away from a sudden and unexplained disease over the course of two weeks, which was, I think, a big shock for me personally, because there was a lot of grief, obviously. And it was just terrible because, you know, her family was obviously highly distraught. You know, everyone was just shocked. And that was, I think, a very big moment for me in the sense that, you know, one, it was it caused a lot of self-reflection, obviously. But two, of course, you know, it caused me to reset what I wanted to do in my life. I, I didn't really feel like I wanted to be in medical research anymore, actually, because I didn't want to be in that medicalized field, actually, to be honest, because I was at a point adverse to hospitals and, you know, all these other areas. And then, of course, I think another thing was, you know, my grades were terrible, right? Because I dropped out of school effectively for a year. So my grades eventually turned out to be nowhere near what you needed it to be as well for medical research as well. So I think that was the start of a multi-year journey for me to, you know, reset, figure out my career path, join the military for a couple of years and, eventually kind of like decide that I would actually want to go to college and then, you know, taking all my exams all over again. And then finally, you know, eventually deciding to explore economics, which was, was my second best subject as a different path. And, but, you know, I think what was interesting was that when I went to university, actually, it didn't really change as much as you thought, because what I decided was I wanted to continue being in vaccine research, but really be more on the program's or strategy side of it. So I studied economics, I was working with nonprofits and social enterprises in the medical field. And so at, even in university, I thought my goal was to provide the strategy layer for the Gates Foundation and so, so forth. So I still wanted to help the world and make the world a slightly better place. But it just felt like it was not going to be me from being in the lab or in the medical life space, but more working on the, the company slash organizational side. The same goal, but just a different side of things. Yeah, exactly. And so that's why in university, I worked with kind of like pretty much like, you know, eight different nonprofits and social enterprises, most of them in the medical side to help them with their operations, with their strategy, with their financials over the time frame. So you said that you dropped out sort of for a year from secondary school. What was it like during that one year? I mean, yeah, it was dropping out from junior college and I was really checked out, right? Uh, that's the long shot of it. I mean, you know, I would turn up in class, but I'm just like, not there, right? And I think obviously on a surface area, like was Jeremy attending class just enough to not get into trouble? Yeah, you know. But was Jeremy like mentally there? Not really, right? And I think one of the interesting parts is like, you know, even today I look back and I say like, what are my memories of, you know, high school versus, you know, or slash junior college versus secondary school? I would say that, yeah, my memories are very fuzzy around junior college. You know, it's just, 
And my doctor friends are like, yeah, you know, this is a very common thing. So when you're grieving, you know, your body doesn't really process memories the same way, right? Because it's just so engrossed in your internal world rather than external world. Mm. So yeah, I wasn't a very good student. I wasn't that uh, my grades were not good, I guess. That was of key importance to my parents, but they also felt like they didn't really know what to do. So that was that. So yeah, definitely in bottom rank of my high school when I graduated, you know, I always remember like, you know, they were announcing the scores, right? And it was a good school. And so you know, there's all these high scorers and they're like this percentage. And I was like, oh shit, I'm definitely in the bottom 10% of the school. <laughs> After they announced all the, the scoring and tears, I was like, oh shit, I'm definitely in the bottom 10% of the school. Did they announce everyone from the top to the bottom? Well, it was the screen? No, they're just like, you know, like X number. And it was like, you know, four A's, two distinctions. And that's like these number of people, right? And then they're like, okay, four A's, one distinction is like 5% of the school, right? Four A's, you know. So like, they kind of like rattle off the key statistics. And after a while, I was like, oh, you know my grades fit in the bottom tier of the school, right? Which sucked in terms of feeling it. I don't know. Yeah, it did suck. I was very unhappy in the sense that nobody wants to know that you're at the bottom rank of yeah. the school. But I mean, it wasn't surprising to me, right? Because it wasn't you, I was kind of checked out. So there's a lot of like internal conversation, right? We're just like, yeah, of course I did poorly because I wasn't focused. But then, oh, I should have been focused because I would have wanted to do better, right? But then I don't want to do better because I don't really care, right? Yeah. You know, that's in retrospect a very teenish way of it. But I think one of the benefits of the world today is just, I think there's a lot more resources for people going through grief. I think at the time, I mean, I, I don't think the internet was that good. So, you know, I, I went to the library and I checked out, yeah. I went to like a section you know, called grief, right? You know? <laughs> so, you know, and then you look at a bunch of like, there's like 10 books there and you're like- and you know, it's you chicken soup for the soul. <laughs> right. And then you're like, yeah, exactly. Right. And you just, I, I did definitely read a lot of chicken soup for the soul, by the way. So <laughs> that's not a joke, by the way. And as well as like our daily bread. And, and you know things like that, right? Yeah, so, but, you know, yeah. So it's, just, it's what you got, right? And the Bible, right? So for me, that was like what you got. I think those three, right? Those then, three were like everyone's like chicken soup, soul, yeah, you know, our daily bread and the Bible. That's what everybody got, right? And then yeah. I was special because I went to the library because I was feeling really sad, I didn't know what to do. And there's a section on grief, right? And then you just check out, look at the ten books, look at the covers, and you just browse through them. And then that's what you had, right? I mean, you know, today the internet has everything, right? You know, it's so normalized, right? In terms of like what to do, what you're feeling, you know. And you tactical know, tips, right? For every type, type of grief that you have. Yeah, you know, you can go to Reddit, you know, Reddit slash grief or Reddit slash counseling. And there's like, I don't know, 10,000, 100,000 people who are like in the exact same spot as you, right? I mean, but I mean, to me back then, it was just very, don't get me wrong. I just still think it's a lonely experience for anyone in the world. But it's just that it was just a crazy time, right? But yeah, it was just a tough time for myself at that point of time. And I'm glad I made it true, yeah. How do you talk about sort of the healing and transformation process? Was there a point in time where you felt like, you know, you healed or you were able to really sort of transform the way you felt and you processed it? Because I feel like, you know, it's a very unique situation and experience that you had, but I feel like people might also benefit from hearing about how you overcame it in a sense. Yeah, long story short, I mean, it took me years, right, to even get comfortable talking about it. I mean, the fact that I can talk about it today is something I could never have done. Honestly, uh, I don't know, for at least five years after everything happened, right? Um, I think I went through my two years in the military. I didn't talk about it, except, you know, some friends who knew about it, obviously. But, you know, we didn't talk about it. My parents didn't really talk about it. You know, nobody really talked about it. It's also an Asian thing, I think, right? Not to talk about things and then just hope that it sort of yeah. passes. Yeah, you know, it's like awkward, right? You know, so I don't know. There's no easy answer. You know, I, 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 you know, I did have a school counselor at least try to talk to me, you know, but, you know, 
as a teenager, you don't kind of like don't really trust you know, the school counselor either. You know, you don't so, trust the system. <laughs> well, I mean, also like you know, the school counselor's got to write down stuff or stuff like uh, that, right? You yeah. know, you're like you know, a school counselor is a school counselor, not I don't know your counselor, right? You know, yeah, they're not on, on your side. <laughs> they're not on your side, right? You know, so and then there was that interesting dynamic. Yeah, I mean. You know, went to university eventually, you know, after studying for the exams again and finally getting good grades, you know, and finally getting, finally applying for college and getting in. Yeah, I didn't talk about it for four years, pretty much. I mean, it was, I think I was in America at UC Berkeley and nobody knew, right? And I think I actually enjoyed the fact that nobody knew, right? Because like a fresh lost, start. Yeah, it was a fresh start, right? It's like everybody was like, oh, you're the, I don't know, cool guy Asian guy who's like from Singapore with the interesting accent that you did two years in the military. And you really care about nonprofits and medical side, you know, yeah, cool. You do you, right? You know, so there was no, you know, it was kind of like a, like you said, fresh start, um, mm-hmm. no baggage. And so I think it was only when I, you know, came back to Southeast Asia and then, you know, started re-immersing myself and kind of like getting to the point, obviously, where honestly, I think the long story short was like, you know, I, I got to into a serious relationship with my now wife. But back then I was like, we were just girlfriends and we were being serious about it. And long story short was like, I just realized that I was just being, I just had a lot of self-limiting beliefs in terms of relationships and what I was you know, supposed to do with my life in terms of relationships, right? So don't get me yeah. wrong. I was like totally functional in terms of yeah. my work or, you know, hanging out with you or whatever it was. But when it just came to relationships, honestly, I was just not great, right? It yeah. was just very commitment phobic, right? Which makes total sense the moment I say out loud today. But um, back then I was just, I was like, oh, you know, I just don't want to commit. Right. You know, and mm. it was a totally normal behavior for myself. And then at some point I realized that it was becoming a bit illogical. And so I was just mm. like, okay, you know, I'm in a serious relationship. You know, let me go f- try to figure out what's going on here. And then, you know, I started doing my research. I started Googling, you know, started starting stuff, started going, doing the self-work. So yeah, I think, you know, it became a lot better pretty much. Not better, but I think I was became more comfortable sharing about it about maybe seven years down the road. And actually to kind of like double click on what you said here is, you know, it's not really a rare thing, right? Because the moment I started sharing about it, I mean, truth is, it's very common, right? I mean, you know, the one thing that's definitely going to happen to all of us is that all of us are going to die. <laughs> I mean, you know, you're going to die. I'm going to die. Like, and all of like, us will lose a, lose a loved one at some point. Yeah, right? and so therefore- many points, like, I guess. <laughs> exactly. Everyone's going to lose a loved one, right? You know, unless a long life means that you're going to have many people that you have loved or have loved you passed away, right? And so what was interesting is as I started being more comfortable sharing the story and so forth, I think a lot of folks were like, yeah, you know, like they may not have necessarily lost their first love, but they may have lost their parents, their grandparents, their, their uncle, you know, friends. And in many ways, it's common, right? And so I think mm-hmm. there's a lot of empathy that came out. So to some extent, I, I think what was fair was like at the age of like 17, right? And 16, the fact that you lose your relationship partner is totally uncommon to all of your peers, right? At a space, right? But yeah, especially in a sudden death, right? Yeah, sudden but death. when so you look yeah, later exactly. on in life, it's yeah. different. Yeah, but then if you talk to fifty-year-old, they probably had many loved ones passed away, right? You know, mm-hmm. so there's an interesting dynamic where I'm just like, you know, you know, the realization that is not a rare occurrence; it's, it's a very common occurrence. But mm-hmm. like you said, there is a stigma around it. But also at the time, you know, there wasn't a lot of resources for people, right? And it wasn't normal to talk about it, right? So I think that's the interesting challenge for, you know, myself back then and even for lots of folks today. How did you get into UC Berkeley and really get to, you know, decide, okay, I want to go to university now, but I want to go to university in the United States. How did you make that jump? Yeah, I mean, you know, I was uh, terrible at school and I just 
autopilot went to you know Singapore military service is mandatory. But I was happy to go because I had no other plan. And for everyone else, they were like pretty frustrated because they're like, "Oh, I, I got into a good university. I can't wait to go there," or they were like, "Oh, you know, I have a girlfriend who's going to the U.S. first, right? You know, or you know somewhere else, and I have to stay in the military." <laughs> So I think people, a lot of people were like just frustrated that they felt like their lives were paused for two years because they had somewhere to go. And it was a big relief to me because, you know, I'll be like nodding along like, yeah, 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 this is terrible. But in my head, I was just like... You could just go on autopilot. It was yeah, better yeah. for you. Yeah. And I always tell people like, if you ever want to stop someone from, I don't know, feeling depressed or grief, you know, what do you give them, right? You make sure that they sleep very early and you make sure they wake up at the crack of dawn, right? You know, you make sure that they're surrounded by people all the time. You make sure they get plenty of exercise and be- get plenty of sunlight and you make sure that they don't think for themselves too much, right? So just keep you know, giving them instructions. And yeah, so, I, have, I have to agree with that. Like for, yeah. for me, I don't think I had like a huge tragic experience happen to me, but when COVID happened in 2020, I planned to go to university, but I felt like, you know, with Zoom university and everything, I didn't think it was worth it to commit to four years of university online. So I decided to take a year off. To all of my friends, I was pretty confident telling them, you know, this is the best decision. But then like behind the scenes, I knew I didn't know what to do or have any plans. So I told myself the last thing I want is to become a bum and really sad. So I actually made a schedule for myself. I would sleep really early, wake up really early, and I'd have a schedule for every single day of the week. I would be like nonstop just following that schedule. And I think it helped me a lot. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. So that's what the military did, right? It's like, you know, they gave me a very structured routine and I just didn't think for like, I don't know, six months, right? Effectively, <laughs> this is making you run, jump, you know, dig, <laughs> shoot, run, you know, squat, do push-ups, you know, you know, you know, he's just doing all these things, right? And I think I remember about Six months in, I think my brain started to kind of like start working again a little bit. Yeah. And I was just like, okay, like, what do I do now? Right. You know, like this six <laughs> months of this. Okay. And I think there was a time, obviously, because I, again, I was an autopilot, you know, for six months. I was like, oh, you know, maybe I'll join the military. Right. <laughs> you know, because <laughs> I'm in the military. I just joined the military. I have no sense. You know, after six months, I was like, oh, no, I, I can't stay in the military. <laughs> it's, like, it's like, I can do this for two years, but I can't do this for like 20 years, you know. So, yeah. So it was a good reminder to be like, okay, if I really don't do anything, I'm really going to be stuck in the military, right? So <laughs> that's when I was like, okay. You now know. you had a goal. Now I had a get goal, which is like, 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 get out of the military, do something with my life. And so I started, it's like, okay, you know, step one is like, you know, I started taking the evaluated. I started to take the SATs, right? The American uh, standardized exam because it was easier than the British one. It was all MCQ. So basically what I would do was I would like, you know, buy the American, again, you know, textbooks, right? You know, for SATs. Then I would, you know, carry them into the bunks, right? And then I would just study at night. Mm-hmm. You know, when we were out in the jungle, you know, we, I would, you know, literally I still remember like, you know, I did the chemistry SATs. I would basically like cut up my SAT books into like, you know, page sections of like 20 or 30 pages. And I put them in a Ziploc bag and I'll put them in my backpack where they'll come like, nice and flat. And so, yeah, you know, everyone else would be exhausted. We're all getting eaten by mosquitoes. And then I'll just like switch on my torchlight and just be like, pull out my Ziploc. And, is this you know. in the dorm or in like? No, this is out in the jungle, right? So oh, like, okay. Yeah, yeah, be out in the, That's why you know. can't bring the book. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because in, in the book, I could be in the bunks. I could use the book, right? But in the jungle, I can't carry the whole book. It's so heavy, right? So I'll just 20, 30 pages. And then yeah, I'll just like, you know, kind of slowly go through them. And, you know, you know MCQ was easy, right? Because you can just use your pen yeah. and just do a few. I was like... 
so yeah, you know, that was a quite experience because, you know, I, I think the folks around me, a lot of them were just not very understanding, right? You know, I mean, in the sense that a lot of them already had their universities lined up or the things mm-hmm. they wanted to do. So that was all lined up for them. And for other folks, it was just like, yeah, you know, just, I don't know, just trying to burn time, right? So a lot of people mm-hmm. had, yeah, you know, PSPs, right? They were playing, you know. A guilty gear and you're the only games. one who was really trying to fight to change yeah. your life or find something to do yeah because i was the only one who had you know mm-hmm. trying to reset exams i think later on in the second year i met a few folks who were kind of like doing the same thing mm-hmm. um it became a little bit easier at that point of time once i knew that i was not the only weirdo kind of like staying up late to look at chemistry and stuff like that so you know in retrospect you know so many years down the road i'm actually quite proud of myself that i actually sat down and got yourself together yeah, because I think before that, you know, like you're always in school, right? And so people, you just end up studying because it's a default thing to do and because everyone else is also studying, right? So yeah. there's a lot of imitation and emulation that's happening. Mm-hmm. So you just end up studying, right? But, you know, army was like literally the first time I've ever been in a situation where everybody's definitely not studying. Everybody's either mm-hmm. trying to like survive the day, play games and, you know, get out mm-hmm. or just like, I don't know you know, vegetate and sleep, right? I mean, because, you know, it's like, because the day is so exhausting, right? Because, you know, yeah. you're trying to excel physically, et cetera. And I was just the one person who was just trying to study, right? It was and the I, first time you had to be self-motivated, I think, right? Yeah, well, I've always been self-motivated to some extent, but it was the first time where I actually made a decision. It's like, I'm self-motivated or choose to do something that nobody else is doing. It was, it was a really interesting time. And I'm very grateful to my, you know, 19 and 20-year-old self <laughs> version of myself that chose to study, right? Because that person eventually ended up applying to college, going to UC Berkeley, and then wouldn't be where I am today if that younger version of me didn't choose to like, say like, okay, I'm going to be the weirdo, right? You know, that's studying, right? You know, interesting times, yeah. When you're at UC Berkeley and you actually founded your own consulting group, right? How did that start? Was it because of your experience in UC Berkeley, you saw it and you wanted to emulate the experience you had consulting in UC Berkeley and bring it to, to Singapore? Or were there other motivations that you also had? Yeah, so, you know, I think when I arrived on campus at University of UC Berkeley, I was very lost, but I knew that I wanted to give back to the social sector at that point in time. So I ended up lucking out to join a social impact consulting group that was working with nonprofits and social enterprises to turn around their operations, right? And it was such a life-changing experience because it was such a passionate group of folks who really wanted to improve things, but also were very committed and it was very selective as well. And so I think it was able to create a very strong and loyal community, right? And that was something that I really needed. It gave me structure, but it also gave me a point of view of unlocking some skills in myself. And I just enjoyed that time tremendously at the university level. You know, I later knew that I was wanted to come back to Southeast Asia from the US. And so I ended up in a position where I wanted to volunteer at a similar organization in Singapore, and it didn't exist. And so as a result, I, you know, I was just brainstorming with my at the time, and still my best friend, uh, Kwok Tiachuan. And we basically had been army buddies. Uh, yeah. We met in the military, we became best friends after that. And he was just kind of like, hey, why don't we just set it up, right? Uh, if it doesn't exist, if you can't volunteer in it, why don't we set it up? Which is, I think, in frank, retrospect, very naive. Uh, and I think a lot of better <laughs> ways. I probably have, want to save myself a lot of time and heartache. Probably just told myself, like, hey, Jeremy, why don't you volunteer at a different nonprofit instead of trying to create your own you know, social enterprise? It, like, you know, it's just such, so much work, right? You know, uh, <laughs> it's just a, you could have even, just picked the social social sector, right? You, yeah, you have you to know. make the exact same one that you used to work at. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So many ways, easier ways to do it. But we decided, I was like, yeah, let's build it. And we did, right? We ended up building uh, Conjunct Consulting, which was 
very, very, very painful in the beginning because there's so many people, so many skeptics and about the business model, about the approach, about whether it could work or not. But yeah, it was, I think, a great experience to be able to do it and build it. And I really enjoyed it at the end of the day. I think it's one thing to build a startup and it's another thing to try to build a bootstrap nonprofit, right? <laughs> Oof, yeah. I mean, you know, and truth is at that point of time, the language didn't re- even really exist, right? So... Uh, effectively, we ended up building a social enterprise, right? Which was had its own revenue streams. It wasn't running on donations, but the language didn't even exist, right? Like the word bootstrap didn't even exist, right? You know, <laughs> I mean, and the word social enterprise didn't even exist. We kind of knew some people calling themselves social entrepreneurs, but they were all weirdos. You know, I use the word weirdo a lot, and we were like, okay, I think that kind of describes us. So at that point in time when we first started out, I think we were like, okay, we want to build a nonprofit, but makes money from its services and not from donations, right? And that's effectively a bootstrap startup, you can call it, because yeah. we had a quite aggressive growth plan. Or you call it a social enterprise, whatever you want to call it. But a lot of the terminology back then just didn't exist about what to call ourselves, even like essays on how to grow, or like all that you stuff. You didn't have like a, for example, what we have now, like a Y Combinator startup guide, but yeah. you didn't have anything like that. <laughs> no, it just didn't exist, right? So it's just like just learning everything from scratch, right? And you just have to like draw it ourselves, do it from, ba- you know, first principles, but, you know, the weird part is we somehow succeeded, right? You know? Yeah, it still exists yeah. today, right? Yeah, it still exists. It's still going strong. It's consulted for hundreds of nonprofits and social enterprises in Singapore, trained thousands of alumni. You know, it's funny because I walk around the Singapore social sector and I just be like, they're like, oh, you're the guy who founded Conjunct Consulting. And I'm like, yeah, I did. And then they're like, wow, how did you make it happen? How, you know, how did you make it you know, self-sustaining? Why is it that you managed to leave and find a successor to take over? Like, because, you know, like nonprofits, you know, when you build in a certain way, you know, like the founder is still there after 20, 30, 40 years. Yeah, right? forever. It's, you know, forever, you know, they, they, they can't really make enough money. They're very, very reliant on donations. I couldn't even really find your name on the website either. I think a lot of like social enterprises, nonprofits I look at, they always have this, the founder page and it's huge and this long story from yeah. that guy yeah. or that lady. <laughs> yeah. And for me, that was one of the big goals I had up front. I was like, yeah, you know, I think for me, my first principle was like, you know, you can't really have a talent ladder if the founder's there all the time, then yeah. who's going to be the high-performing executive who's going to take over? And if there's no high-performing executives, then who's the high-performing employees and volunteers? And, and How did you think of all of this? Up, right? <laughs> you know, just talking to a lot of people. But it was just like, yeah, you know, like if I have a plan to go, then that forces me to have a succession plan. But me forcing me to have a succession plan means that that forces me to have a, a coaching um, and a leadership training plan, right? Which forces me to have a very strong recruiting plan, right? So I think it was kind of like working backwards, right? And that forced me to build all those things so that we could find a successor over time. So yeah, you know, you know, I'm glad people have taken over. There's been good, you know, change of hands and the organization keeps growing and keeps going. And I honestly, that's a beautiful story, right? Because I think obviously when I was younger, it's like, oh, you know, this thing could go so huge. It could grow all over Southeast Asia, the multiple cities, multiple countries. And you're like, eh, you know, like, no, I think, I think when it comes to, at least for the first company, like you said, you know, bootstrap, social enterprise, like the fact that it's able to be, have that long-term game, right? Is this, I think it's underrated, right? It's criminally underrated. I think people are trying to be like that billion dollar company or from, you know, trying to be like from, that. From the first company. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and I just think that what was the goal, right? The goal was to like deeply impact the clients that we were serving as well as to deeply impact, you know, the members of the community that we were training, right? And so I think everything worked out from that. 
and more, honestly, because the truth is, I always tell people like my successor, you know, she was better than me, right? You know, mm -hmm. it, it does great. And it felt sucky to acknowledge that because like, oh, she's better than me on all these dimensions. But you're like, oh, that's good. I mean, you know, I take credit for it, right? For it's good for your clients. Right? It's good, yeah, it's good for, for my clients, everybody it's good for the community, it's good for everybody else. But, you know, it's a bit bruising for your ego mm -hmm. when you first kind of like go about doing it. But that's all you wanted to do, honestly. Did you already know that you wanted to find a successor when you sort of hired her? Or not? You know, I think, I mean, I don't think it was like at a point of founding, you're like, oh, I want to leave. But nobody really does that. But <laughs> well, at some so she point, was there super early on. But I think pretty early on, I was very much like, okay, if this is a really highly performing organization, what does it need to have, right? Mm -hmm. And kind of like working backwards, you just kind of like go through all of that logic, right? For better or for worse. So yeah, you know, I, I think it was more like just saying like, okay, you know, it was more like if you want an organization to have great talent, you need to have mm -hmm. promotion opportunities. You need to have that coaching and grooming. You need that upward mobility, right? Yeah. So it's not like, for example, as Conjured Consulting grew over the years, this talent developed over the years and you told yourself, maybe she should take over and I should leave. It wasn't like that case. That's the way that to screw it up, honestly. <laughs> A lot of organizations <laughs> like that. It's like, okay, I'm just going to hover around and, you know, eventually, oh, this one's good enough to take over, maybe. And then, you know, kind of like this very reactive way, like that's definitely the worst way to do it because the truth is you know high performers have other opportunities right <laughs> you know yeah so you want to sit down with them and just tell them like hey you have a shot right you know and you tell them like the shot is not now but a shot is in two years or three years or four mm. years and then high performers are excited about it right you know those with a rough mindset and they say like okay mm. i want to give it a shot whereas a lot of folks are just like yeah you know if you don't think they have a shot then they're just gonna leave right um yeah you know to a place that promises them that upward mobility so i think that's really the crux of the dynamic for a lot of succession planning it's like yeah you can't wait i think you have to start honestly probably like five years in advance like i mean i don't think it should be like oh i want to leave oh i can leave in five years okay let's start mm -hmm. planning now but it's more like the other way around we're just okay you know i built a great you know place to hire and recruit the great best people i created a, a ladder for them to learn i've created the structures and opportunities for them to improve and advance their career. And I'm in serious about letting there be a space for the best of the best high performers to get rise all the way to the top. That's really the chronology that people should be focusing on. Then years after you founded Content Consulting, you ended up at Harvard Business School, right? Was that something that was influenced by your time building your own venture? Yeah. So, you know, I think I had opportunity to go to Harvard MBA with an offer. And I thought there was a tremendous opportunity to do and take. And yeah, I took it. I actually ended up deferring my admission to Harvard by a year because I felt mm -hmm. like I hadn't found the successor yet. I needed more time to train and coach and find and vet the right candidates, but also to get to the next stage. So yeah, I thought it was a great experience. I went to Harvard. I told myself, I said, hey, you know, I'm happy with my performance as a consultant at Bain. I'm happy with my performance as the you know co-founder of Conjunct Consulting and leading it to break even and to the next stage of what needs to be done. And I would like to learn, right? And so mm -hmm. for me, I was very much in a learn mode about you know tech, about being an executive, about uh, the world. So that was a really fun experience uh, mm -hmm. to go to Boston and learn. So that time, it was sort of the next stage for you like focus on yourself again and learn. But then during your time at Harvard Business School, you ended up founding your own startup. How did that happen? <laughs> yeah, you know, I went to Harvard and I did my MBA and then, you know, I very much had, uh, I think, three goals. Uh, I think the first was to meet a new person every day or have a good deep discussion. The second was that I felt like I wanted to 
learn to be a good leader and CEO, as well as learning what it means to be a good founder. And the third thing was I wanted to join something that I cared about. And if it didn't exist, to be able to create it. So I think my two years at Harvard were very much you know, a function of me, honestly, just visiting a lot of different companies and you know, different verticals, right? So I was like, you know, I was part of the healthcare club. I was like hanging out with the doctors, the hospitals, to understand operations. Cause I was like, Hey, what would it be like to work at in a hospital uh, as an executive? Um, what would the dynamics of that be? Yeah. And then I kind of realized that I had been a co-founder and so, so forth. So I was like, yeah, exploring the various startups, that opportunity. So I visited all kinds of startups, right? I visited, you know, the headquarters of Casper, ZocDoc, Omada Health. So, you know, it was a nice uh, visit, right, to all the various, you know, campuses of these startups to just understand yeah. what they're doing and building. So, yeah, some interesting times. And you got to the point where, you know, I was just sitting down and exploring different different ideas. Uh, and what we ended up doing was we said, oh, you know, I was interested in, you know, kind of like mental wellness as a category. So we started interviewing lots of folks who had struggling with mental wellness. And then we ended up finding out that, you know, there are different clusters and one of the biggest clusters was postpartum depression. And so as we interviewed uh, mothers with postpartum depression, we found out that the vast majority of them were struggling with the return to work and also the provision of high quality childcare. And so that was causing them a lot of stress that was precipitating their postpartum depression. And so we sat down, we brainstormed about it. You know, I always remember there was a doctor and, and he was very much like, you know, if you want to treat this, you know, maybe you should build like uh, something that creates like group therapy and counseling to accept the fact that there's no good childcare, right? And <laughs> and I was like, and, you know, and I thought it was, I mean, he was very serious, right? I mean, he was like very much like from, because, you know, you're a doctor, you're like, okay, I have all these women who are depressed because they, there's no good childcare and they can't go back to work and therefore their identity is being shredded and therefore they're postpartum depression. And you're like, as a doctor, you're like, well, the answer is like group counseling and put them in a room with other moms who've also lost their jobs because they can't find childcare. <laughs> all right. And then they all commiserate and then they feel better about it. And then, you they know, can go back to work. <laughs> you can go back to work after maybe two or three or four or five years when they finally figure out a childcare situation. But and I was like, yeah, that makes sense from a medical perspective. But in uh, practice. <laughs> but in practice, maybe what you could do is help them get back to work and help them find the childcare they want, right? You know. So uh, So this and, is how it started. I thought it was yeah. because maybe you had your own your own kid at the time already and then no, thought no, that really. it was an experience that led you to make this. <laughs> yeah, it was just like, yeah, it's just like meeting like 107 very sad, frustrated, angry. Mothers. new moms right and this is like <laughs> where's the childcare? and everyone's like uh, so how did you find do you want group counseling do you want mothers? pills you know <laughs> do you want a massage like you know like everyone's like they're like no I don't know I just need I need childcare, right you know so how did you find them that's a lot of mothers that's not hot right I mean moms are easy right you just ask all your friends and he's just like hey do you know someone who's a new mom you know right or going to be a mom so and you would then, meet with them face to face or yeah, I'll do calls with them or, you know. Um, so it was, I think it was pretty, I mean, moms are easy to find. I mean, it's like, <laughs> come on. Like, I mean, you know, Facebook is still around and trimester one after that's done, right? Everybody puts their little photo saying we're expecting, right? Okay, that's true. Right, that's true, right? <laughs> I mean, it's, you know, it's a okay, joyous. Moms are not that easy, not that hard to find after all. <laughs> yeah, then we, I mean, yeah. I, I, I think people underestimate how easy it is to find your target user if you're just very specific about who they are, right? You know what I mean? Uh, so, 
Yeah. And then how did you get figuring out, okay, this is the problem, childcare, and then building out the solution? What did the earliest version of that look like? Were you the babysitter? <laughs> yeah, we were, right? You know, we were just taking childcare. <laughs> we, we, you know, we observed them in the home. I think there's, and yeah, we still have like, you know, the, the brainstorming and the pictures that we have, right? Where it was just like very much like, okay, you know, what happens if we invert the childcare model, right? How do we look at in-home childcare versus a network of homes with, you know, childcare providers in them? So I think lots of different iterations of it. Um, and you know, there's no easy way to say it, but I think the easiest way of saying it was at the end of the day, I think when it comes to childcare, and I think one of the things we realized is that at the end of the day, it's a highly regulated space in a sense that, you know, there's a certain ratio of kids that are allowed per teacher. And obviously it's a high risk activity, right? Because you're taking care of children, they're at risk, you know, they're crawling, they have a chance of, you know, SIDS, right? You know, sudden infant death syndrome. So there's a lot of high quality standards that you need to have. So the parameters that you have around childcare is actually not that many. So it's more about being creative about how do you go about solving it. So for us, we ended up building up a nanny sharing network. Uh, today, we call them childcare pods, actually. So that was an interesting ride where, you know, we built the company uh, over many years, uh, you know, from pre-C to C to Series A. We grew that out to about $8 million of revenue. And then eventually we sold that to uh, Higher Ground Education, uh, which was a global daycare chain. And then there we kind of like worked with them over a year to kind of like integrate that across the country and get nanny sharing and childcare pods legalized across many uh, states. So it was kind of an interesting experience. And I think the, the tricky part is like, I think for a lot of founders who are asking about how to build something, I think you just got to start from scratch, right? I think you just got to start from day one, just build, solve the problem, and then you keep trying and trying and trying different iterations of it. So I think that's how we went about doing it on our way, but I think it's still not solved, honestly, right? We cracked and solved like maybe like 5% of the problem, to be honest, from a solutions basis, which is I think 5% of childcare is still quite a lot in terms of creating a new model of childcare. But even today, I think um, the problem is that I think America is a uniquely broken place for childcare and families. Mm. And so I think a lot more needs to be done. And, you know, I was just like literally today just looking at a startup deck today and they're just talking about how they want to solve the childcare problem. And I was like, well. Surprise, I'm yeah. an expert <laughs> somehow. <laughs> well, you know, I, it wasn't, I wasn't surprised because I had seen different iterations of this approach, right? And I think America has a unique problem just fundamentally, which is that there's just not enough childcare providers, right? So I think everyone's just trying to like, <laughs> different parameters of dealing with the same problem, but it's just like, there's just not enough. You know, if you're living far away from family and when you don't have federal protected maternity leave, let alone paternity leave, I think you're in for a lot of demand, right? Uh, for childcare that is not well served, full stop. What's it like to actually build a startup for, you know, a target customer that isn't you? I mean, you didn't experience the same problem yourself, right? So did that pose as a huge challenge or were you able to augment that with all of the speaking that you had with your users? Mm -hmm. Well, actually, our team actually had quite a lot of experience with mm -hmm. nursing as well as with education tech. I mean, personally, I also had interned at a China Series A startup that was building uh, preschools, which is not the exact segment, but a little bit different in terms of target demographic. And long story short would be, it is a challenge, but it's an overcomable challenge, right? What I mean by that is, at the end of the day, it's about empathy for the target user, I'll give you an example would be like, you know, you wouldn't go to a homeless clinic, right? I'm giving you an example, right? You did you don't need to be homeless in order to build an <laughs> organization that serves homeless people, right? Yeah, you know I mean, like 
Yeah. Like that's bonkers, right? You know, like, yeah, <laughs> you know, like, you know what I mean? Like, you know, there's so many other ways, examples would be like, there's so many companies that people who built FedEx, right? They were not mailmen. <laughs> I think oh. it's just that there's so much startup advice that I see, especially like on Twitter and outside. They say that, oh, you should be somebody who has experience with the problem, experience in the space. And it's always a plus. I would disagree. Yeah. It's just like, which is why I'm asking you. <laughs> I, I think it helps, right? Does it make sense? Mm-hmm. But, but the question is, in what aspects does it help, right? And is the founder self-aware about their strengths and their gaps to bring on the right people to help them to do it, right? There's a lot of scientific literature to show that there are lots of founders who have experience of the target problem and who are successful. And there are lots of people who have did not have experience in that domain, but also turned out to be successful, right? But I think the path to be successful is different, right? So for example, the founder mm-hmm. who's been that person is obviously going to rely on their empathy, rely on their personal approach to do it. And they have to be careful not to over-index on their own personal experience, but to generalize the experience to more folks, right? Yeah. Versus I think folks who don't have the experience, they're very much making a decision to say, okay, I don't have the experience, but I have something else, right? Maybe I have the skill set, I have the knowledge, I have the determination, and I'm self-aware of this enough to really focus on learning as much as possible from as many people as possible and also being thoughtful about bringing on the right people to help me avoid the pitfalls, but also maximize the success. That's a very different model of success, right? And I'm not saying that if you have experience, it means you're successful. I think you can be unsuccessful easily. But I'm also not saying that if you don't have that personal experience, that you would be unsuccessful. I I think this really goes back to like, what is your level of self-awareness? And in our situation, it was like, okay, we knew that we understood education tech. We knew that we understood startups. We knew that we understood product design. We knew we understood how to do, you know, engineering. And we just made sure we had brought on immediately, right? You know, the first uh, folks that we hired were like, you know, for example, like daycare teachers, right? Or principals, right? Effectively, right? Uh, Managers of these daycares who could provide us that, for example, point of view on what the educational pedagogy should be like, for example. So I think that's the story for almost every startup, right? It's like, the truth is the normal setup of two co-founders there's no way they have all the knowledge at that moment neither to build whatever they're building right so they have to learn and they have to focus right I mean look at the Airbnb founders right you know did, did they had they ever worked at Hilton or Marriott mm-hmm. <laughs> or been, they just had know, an airbed in their their place right yeah, exactly you know, <laughs> they were designers product designers beforehand right but they had to learn right I think what predicts for success is really you know the personal rate of learning for all these uh founders and startups so what's it like exiting your company and then coming back to southeast asia now being on the opposite side of the table yourself what's it like to be a vc now angel investing and i think you also mentioned before that you want to be a different kind of vc so in the past i guess almost two three years of you being a vc do you think you've been able to do that be a different vc the hard questions Um... (laughs) So I think after being acquired by Higher Ground Education, I was the GM there for a year. And, you know, we were dealing with the COVID pandemic and a response to it and emergency childcare. It was a crazy time. And then there was an opportunity to, you know, join venture capital. I think venture capital was interesting because I had worked with VCs, right? They were on my board and, you know, they were pitching me, collaborating with me as a founder. So I very much had experience on the other side of the table, but I thought it was an interesting experience to see what the venture capital side was like, right? And I think the big thing I realized about the space was that 
there was like a thousand Jeremy's out there, right? <laughs> you know what I mean? You know, because as a founder, you're very focused on your domain, your space, your work. And obviously you hang out with other people, right? So, you know, I was hanging out with like Danielle and John and Leif and all these, Matt, uh, you know, it's like all these great folks that I really enjoyed because they were great founders and I respected what they were doing. And yet what was interesting was as a VC, I think you're on our side of the table, you see like there's like, a thousand Jeremy's, right? There's a lot of people yeah. who have a f- dream to be a founder, have building up teams and are selling to customers. So I thought it was a very interesting inversion, I think, to see the other side of the table. Similarly to how, like when I was a founder, you know, I saw hundreds of VCs, to be honest, right? You know, yeah. and so they're all kind of like saying the same stuff anyway as well. So I thought it was a really interesting um, experience. And, you know, I, I remember I was transitioning to become a VC and then, yeah, you know, I sat down and, there was a VC and she sat down with me and she wanted to ask me what was it like to be a founder, right? Because she was like <laughs> going the other direction. And she was like, Jeremy, what advice do you have for me as a, you know, VC someone who wants, who wants to be a founder? founder? Exactly, right? And I was oh. just be like, so, you know, it does a nice, uh, you know, meeting of the minds there. How are you sort of trying to be a different VC or a humane VC now? And do you think you're able to do that differently already? Or do you think it's like a constant process? You know, I think that venture capital, at the end of the day, it's about, building the future, right? And so, which is similar to founders in the sense that everyone's aligned that they're trying to build the future. But I think for founders, I think you actually have this interesting dynamic where you represent the team, the talent, the vision, right? Of mm-hmm. what needs to be done. And you have that time horizon, right? So if you really care about a problem, you have a time horizon, yeah. 20 years, 30 years, heck, 50 years, right? And mm-hmm. and so, for example, I was like, you know, like John Carmack, right? He's been doing VR and Doom and you know, like very big on VR, right? And But he's been a founder multiple times and uh, in a joint matter, executive, but this person has been doing like his career for like 30 years in a row, right? And he's still going. He's still got another 20, 30 years more to go. And that may be at different companies or different approaches and different roles, but, you know, he has that passion of that category, right? For that dynamic. So, uh, he's bringing his vision, his leadership, and his point of view, right? And I think for VCs, it's actually a very different thing because they represent the capital side, right? Which is, you know, limited partners have had that relationship and contractual agreement to say, hey, we're looking for companies that are going to become a billion-dollar company effectively in 10 years, right? And so in some ways, the VCs are looking to invest in companies that are going to reach that billion-dollar valuation, I guess you can call it, right? Or pathing, right, in 10 years. And so VCs are representing capital, all right? Um, also representing some level of board collaboration and strategy, but also representing actually the time horizon, actually. There's a 10-year dynamic to it, right, for every investment. And so there's an interesting marriage that happens between founders who need capital uh, and willing to go fast within 10 years and VCs who are willing to co-own a company that's highly risky and underwrite that risk in order to be part of that journey. And I think there are so many beautiful stories of when everything goes right, when both sides are in harmony. So, you know, we look at Facebook was VC funded, right? Palantir was VC funded. Airbnb was VC funded. Uber was VC funded. Grab was VC funded. Gojek was VC funded. That's, I think there are a lot of good stories, if that makes sense, that could only happen with the marriage of both capital and leadership. And I think those are all those good stories. But I think where everything else happens is like, what happens before that? What happens when things are not going well? And I think that's really, I think, the debate and the struggle that really exists. I think we talked a lot about who you are at work, what you've achieved, but you're also a founder. You also have a family and obviously you have your life outside of all this work. I mean, you're super busy. You even have a podcast and everything you do. Sometimes I wonder how on earth you have the time, especially with kids. 
So what are you like outside of the work side? What is your weekend like? What hobbies do you have? What do you like to do with your kids? <laughs> I think I'm funny and fun uh, and cool. What does Definitely a cool dad look like? <laughs> cool dad. I mean, you know, I like the dad you tell jokes. your kids I'm a VC. No. <laughs> so I'm cool. <laughs> you know, no. your dad had an exit. Mm. that You know, that makes him cool among other adults. I'm no. sure you don't tell them that. <laughs> no. I think the best part of having kids is that, you know, they love you, right? So much, right? And I think there's an unconditionality to it. It's just so um, simple and easy and honestly refreshing, right? So what it boils down to is like, yeah, I think weekends very much are like wake up on Saturday, breakfast with the kids, then go for lunch together. Then they go for a nap. Then I start, you know, in the afternoons, that's when I record a podcast during nap <laughs> time or, you know, like, you know, just, you know, record a podcast because the kids are asleep. Yeah, and then, you know, I like to read science fiction. So at night, I'll probably be reading like a science fiction book or a self-help book, right? About psychology. <laughs> but not Chicken uh, Soup for the Soul anymore. <laughs> yeah, it's more advanced Chicken Soup for the Soul. It's still Chicken Soup for the Soul, <laughs> but it is rotated more, you know, analogies, I guess, <laughs> you know. Yeah, so yeah. And then, um, so that's the, the weekends. I also do some improv as well. So like improvisational improv? Call, comedy as well. Um, so, you know, I'll take a class every weekend. Oh, it's a class. Yeah. Where do you perform? Like, is that a public thing or is it a private thing with your class? Uh, well, it's a private thing that okay, some friends get to see. You don't want anyone to take you. And I don't really, well, now the world knows, I guess, true. <laughs> Uh, I guess back scoop you got a scoop now is that if you turn off our improv performance maybe you'll see me and, but I would be desperately not trying to talk about the tech of VC or startups because you know it's comedy right so I think it's a nice way to um, you know uh, switch off your brain and just be in the moment and really be about doing improvisation with folks who are good hearted people so that'll be my weekend oh you know try to go for walks hiking in nature not much hills but you know I'm not very fit either. So he <laughs> walks around Singapore. I like eating too. So just immediately negates all the gains or the walks <laughs> I just mentioned. Uh, so, but you know. What's your favorite food for anyone who's listening and wants a recommendation in Singapore? <laughs> you know, I think the my favorite food, I have a long list. If people are interested, hit me up. I have a Google Maps list of all my favorite food places in Singapore. Okay, I'm going to um, take you up on that myself. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's quite an esoteric mix because, you know, but I think in terms of, obviously, if you travel to Singapore, you probably want something that's very much more representative of Singapore, right? Because I think one of the benefits of Singapore is that it also has that diversity and range, right? So you can eat Vietnamese, you can eat Filipino food, you can eat Italian. So I think Singapore food is actually a little bit of a melting pot where you can eat lots mm -hmm. of different things in the same day at different times. But yeah. if you want to come to Singapore as a tourist, then I think very much you have to eat, you know, Peranakan, right? Um, which is, you know, a mixture between Malay, Indian, and Chinese influences, right? And, um, you know, I think uh, there's some good recommendations. My favorites probably would be like, if you're looking for that bit of a modernized, easy introduction, it'd probably be like Godmama at Funan. It's a, you know, it kind of made it much more easier, modernized, very accessible pricing. I think if you want to go like truly like fusion, you know, I want to make it European fine dining. Obviously, Candle Nut is a great place at Dempsey. But I think the one that for those who are more of a history buffs and really want to see like the old school like house traditionally done, probably you will go to like True Blue uh, at Armenian Street. And those are all good places. You can go to my website too. Uh, <laughs> Your website has this list. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There we go jeremyow.com yeah 
I'm going to link that for anybody. Yeah, exactly. He's like, everyone's like, I don't care about this Jeremy's tech startup leadership podcast. I don't care I, what the, I, Jeremy said. I just want to know about the food. <laughs> I just need a food list. There we go. <laughs> uh, okay, this is super fun. And I feel like now I have even more questions to ask, but I think because we have to wrap up, I'm going to ask you the same question I'm asking everybody yeah. I'm speaking to, which yeah. is what's something that you want to accomplish in your personal life? That doesn't have to be something you need to accomplish this week, this month, or even this year. But off the top of your head, what's something you want to accomplish in your personal life? You know, I think that one thing I would love to do in my life is, you know, I love walking and I love walking with good company. And, you know, I, earlier in my life, I had a one month walk from Los Angeles to Yosemite across the Pacific Crest Trail. I was very much inspired one by the book. One month walk? Yeah, yeah. It was a hike in nature. Yeah. I don't know if you read a book Wild by Cheryl Strait. No. It's like Eat, Pray, Love, but for like, but with a hiking twist. I'm not going to uh, read it because I might end up walking for a month. <laughs> yeah, it was a, it's a beautiful walk and I really enjoyed it. And, and I was walking with my then girlfriend and now she's my wife. So you know, that month was a tremendous. She joined you and, for the one month. Yeah, she didn't want me to die from bears or stuff, even though she's not a fan of walking. Oh. And then we walked there and at the end of the hike, I was like, oh, you know, like she could be the one, right? You know, and then of course, immediately we had a fight once we returned to the city and then I was like, oh, no, it's off. But then after that, I was like, the one month walk was good, right? But, you know, it's just like, you know. <laughs> okay, so, yeah. But I would love to do, um, I'd love to do the Camino de Santiago. So it's an old pilgrimage walk that you can do for spiritual or non-spiritual reasons, but Basically, you walk from France or, you know, from Spain and you walk across, you know, the country and then you end up at the ocean. So it's about a month as well for, to walk. But of course, you walk from town to town, you're backpacking, you know, everyone's doing that, you know, personal pilgrimage. And you get to walk across some beautiful countryside, you know, all the roads are well marked. There's food every day. There are different towns along the way. So you don't need to pack too much food. You know, there are places to sleep. So you don't need to like bring your own tent but you know it's more about the camaraderie of like you know tens of thousands of people just taking this pilgrimage and just walking right and i think that'll be i'll love to do it one day i'll love to carve out a month and just uh you know walk you know listen to an audiobook along the way talk to other people who are also um, doing a walk for whatever reasons they're doing it eat bread and olive oil and <laughs> you know uh, i think that would just be such a fun walk to do okay now this is convincing me <laughs> This is why I'm not going to read the book because I might end up on that one walk and then I won't be able to send out any newsletters. <laughs> and I know. at least with you, you can pre-record the podcast. Yeah, exactly. That's, you just like the three months before, I'll just be like recording on the podcast yeah. in advance. Yeah. People might not even realize that you're not there. <laughs> that's that's the plan, yeah. Well, thank you so much, Jeremy, for joining me. It thank was you. so it was great a, getting to know you so much better. Thank you. It was a pleasure hanging out with you. And so if you're interested, go to www.bravesea.com if you want to get that food list or anything else that you want to check out. And listen to all of Jeremy's other great podcasts. He's the expert. <laughs> <laughs> and also check out Beck's Scoop and subscribe. <laughs> all right.